Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I ask the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Australia is back on track. I actually find it gobsmacking. Just dumbstruck. I'm going to shirt front, Mr Putin. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. I don't think I know. I have no hesitation. That should cause great concern. Just sit down. Let's stick in your eyes. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. He needs a mirror. I mean... Fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. Hi there, Mark Kenny here from ANU's Australian Studies Institute with another Democracy Sausage episode. And this week, I want to bring you something a bit different. Rethinking Social Media and Extremism is a new book from ANU Press, launched just a couple of days ago by ANU Vice-Chancellor Brian Schmidt. It followed a brilliant symposium held at ANU which brought together scholars in a range of disciplines to discuss social media and how it changes the way we understand the world, how we socialise and even organise, and how it can be used for colossal wrongdoing as well. I'm thrilled to have two of the editors of the book, the two editors of the book indeed, with me this week to tease out some of the arguments it canvasses. Professor Shirley Leach is Professor Emerita at the Australian Studies Institute and Paul Pickering is the founding director of the Australian Studies Institute. Welcome to you both. Thanks, Mark. Great pleasure to be here. Thanks, Mark. Let me also welcome Dr. Katrina Grant. Uh, Dr. Grant is Senior Lecturer in the Centre for Digital Humanities Research and her engaging essay in this collection is titled Performance of Power, the Site of Public Debate. Welcome to you too, Katrina. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Mark. I've long wanted to get you onto the podcast and now we have a, a very credible reason for doing so. Shirley, I'll start with you. The impetus for the symposium that I mentioned, which of course then informed uh, the, the range of, of chapters or essays that we have in this book, uh, the impetus for that was the you know appalling events in Christchurch in 2019. Can you just take us through, uh, you know, just take us back to to then and uh, and and why that? Because you were sort of one of the key reasons this symposium happened. Uh, just talk us through the, the sort of reasoning in your mind about that and why why social media was such a focus. What was different and special and tragic, especially tragic about Christchurch, was the fact that social media was absolutely at the heart of this whole event. Social media was implicated in the radicalisation of the terrorist. It was implicated in the networks that he formed on social media um, through Facebook, but as well as on the dark web through uh, 8chan and so forth. Uh, 
just before he went and shot 51 men, women and children, he invited his friends to join him on Facebook and then he proceeded to live stream the entire massacre, uh, framing it as a first-person uh, shooter game. Uh, and it went out uninterrupted and not one person complained to Facebook. Uh, Facebook itself didn't appear to be aware that it was happening. And it was subsequently shared millions of times on the internet. So I think it was especially horrific because it was brought to you courtesy of the same social media platform that are on which you share your holiday snaps and your diet tips and your what I've just read recommendations. And it sparked an international outcry. Uh, it led to the Christchurch call, which was one of the first international agreements uh, about um, uh, trying to control violent extremist content online. Um, it was also extraordinary because there was a marked difference in the response from the US. Now, the US has special legislation that has actually protected social media companies from any liability for their content. They are the largest uh, publishers of news and various other forms of content now, but they have actually been defined not as publishers. And so while your local newspaper might be very well controlled and regulated, something as enormous as Facebook and Twitter um, and YouTube and so forth, they have actually escaped um, a lot of those same controls and liabilities. And there is there is quite a lot of growing evidence now that there's no justification for this and that it has actually led to a very sort of powerless situation that we, that we now all find ourselves in globally. Yeah, this is uh, the the argument that uh, these these social media behemoths have have run for you know since they've been around, and they are a relatively recent phenomenon. Um, but that argument that they are essentially platforms, they're they're spaces for um, for people to and groups to to publish and exchange uh, to communicate with each other, but the companies themselves don't have any responsibility for the content, but. That's a pretty extraordinary claim to make when you see the what you know the the appalling implications of some of that content, and this was a graphic example of it. And of course, there have been many others. They certainly have. Uh, I mean, I think one of the other aspects that you can't forget is actually how uh, the profitability of these companies has has actually been underpinned by their lack of legal responsibility or liability. Uh, and the, another dimension also of the whole unfolding crisis uh, in terms of violent extremism online has been the threats that these companies actually face, particularly under the Trump um, administration. But it has continued with the conservative voices uh, in, you know, in, in Congress, in the US Congress. But every time the companies have looked like they're going to control uh, uh, content, particularly from the far right um, and from what what they would call the alt-right or conservative groups, that they have been threatened with uh, antitrust suits. In other words, 
their entire business model has come under threat, their profitability has come under threat every time it's looked like they've been about to take action. Paul, um, what's the sort of overall philosophy of the book, though? Because the, the it's not just about Christchurch, is it? There are chapters that, I guess, use that as the as the jumping-off point for considering a whole range of issues, as Shirley's just been saying, that are thrown up by by that appalling event, but also by others. And in fact, you take even a, a very sort of historical, you are a historian by training, but you take a, a very much a historical uh, lens to it. Um, I wonder if you could just give us a sort of an outline of the overall structure of the book and and perhaps then go to, the, to, to why you think we need to remember the history here. Thanks, Mark. Um, when Shirley first came to us with the idea of a symposium on this issue, it seemed um, it seemed perfect for the dreadful circumstances that we were looking at um, from Christchurch. And our aim was to bring together a range, as broad a range as we could, of interdisciplinary scholars. So the book is, I think, a reflection of that. Um, and we are very pleased that, we can bring together philosophers, um, economists, people from media studies, people from digital humanities, um, historians, um, to all focus on the same uh, set of issues. To, in a sense, try and create a to try and create momentum for thinking about these issues in a more holistic way, and I, I think Shirley and I are can be proud of the authors in that they've embraced that challenge. Um, and so, uh, and I think we've ended up with a, a good read. In relation to my chapter that's um, co-written with Terry Nermico Fuller as an internal polemic, we try and, in a sense, start from the beginning and finish at the contemporary point or the point at which we currently are in terms of the debate. Um, and uh, I think it's a lively polemic, and uh, uh, Terry would say I'm wrong, and I would say she's wrong. Yes, that's right. So you've taken a kind of a uh, there's a dialogue in the, in that chapter of the book, and you've called it crisis. What crisis? Which sort of suggests at least that there's an argument being put um, that uh, there you know the, the the problem that people are diagnosing may not be. Um, Perhaps as open and and or, or as black and white uh, as um, as some people think it is, or indeed is as novel. I guess. Um, well, the, the term crisis, what crisis comes from a um, a tabloid newspaper in the UK um, from nineteen seventy nine. Is that when it was first used? Yeah, wow. and then it was then it was borrowed by the band Supertramp as a as a, a title for an album as well. Um, but what it what it's designed to underline, I think Terry and I uh, agreed, was the sense in which um, this is not the first crisis, and that in a sense innovations in technology have always produced a sense of crisis, and our argument is uh, between us whether in fact internet technology is unlike any other crisis that we've in a sense um, that we've we've come to a new uh, form of uh, crisis which is unlike any of the previous 
Katrina, where do you stand on that question? Um, it's a it's a it's a big one, isn't it? Because uh, yes, you can talk about the invention of of writing on tablets. Uh, you can talk about the invention of the printing press. Eventually, uh, you know, books, uh, newspapers, which are sort of very much mass media, um, broadcasting in particular, radio, then television. But all of these things are, in a sense, in the hands of the elites. Right? They're, they're sort of they are very, very, very significant in terms of the amount of information that can be pumped out and 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 kind of universalized uh, understandings of historical events, contemporaneous events, and the like. But nonetheless, they are controlled, curated by 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 capital, by people who have power, or by governments. The internet is of a different order, isn't it? There's a different character, particularly going back to what Shirley was saying about you know this sort of whole thing about platforms. But it's it's hyper-democratic. Mm. It, it is. It is. I, I mean, in a way, I feel a bit as a, as a historian who is also a digital humanities researcher that I, ha- I have this polemic that Paul and Terry wrote about in my own head because on the one hand, as a historian, you think these things have happened before. This is not the first time the world has been in crisis that, and there have been worse crises that we've confronted. But also you, you look at it and you as someone who works online, who who spends a lot of time online, both as a researcher and as a as an individual. Um, I, you know, I grew up in the night, was at high school in the 90s and the internet emerged, it emerged while I was doing my undergraduate study and it did change everything. And there was this sense that I think what was so alluring about social media in its early forms on forums, which I guess was one of the first ways you encountered this ability to reach out to other people and then on Twitter, was this sense that you could just reach all sorts of people, that that this idea of the filter bubble almost, it wasn't there early on. There wasn't this sense that you were just talking to like-minded people, even though maybe you were, you were self-selecting and, and self-selecting who you followed and who you listened to. But it was this this sense that you could get online and find special interest groups. And, and I remember setting up a support group for people doing PhDs in 2005. And we just, it was like having a water cooler when you were stuck at your own desk at home. And and so it it is really different. Like you didn't get that through books. You didn't get that through magazines. You could send your letters into the editor, but the editor got to decide whether you talk to everyone, whereas now you get to decide. Everyone else gets to decide whether they listen to you or not. But There's a big generational yeah. divide in some of these interpretations, though, I think. I mean, not not exclusively, because there are certainly people who are who who are who are, you know, fully fledged adults long before the internet came around and who are absolutely dedicated to it and conversant with it mm. in all kinds of expert ways but as a generalization there's a whole there are a lot of people who now have grown up with it and who are very uh, very adept at, at at using it very strong supporters of the concept of the internet and then there are others who have perhaps seen both worlds the pre-digital and the post-digital world and have some have some criticisms of it have some concerns about the corrosive effect of, say, misinformation, for mm. example. Yeah, I, I mean, I think people who are, have grown up with it have those concerns as well. They observe those things happening. Perhaps, I mean, one of the differences, and I was thinking about this this yesterday, uh, talking to a group of students about sort of art online and digital art and, and that world, is 
is that that sense of, you know, there isn't any difference anymore. It's like there isn't this distinction between things you do in real life, IRL, and and the things that you do online. It's all part of our lives. We carry around smartphones and we can switch between having a conversation in person and, um, you know, right now we're sitting in a studio and some of us are here in person and some of us are joining online. There isn't that distinction. It's sort it's going of, so well as well, isn't it? We've had no technical <laughs> problems. Fantastic. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> the internet is wonderful. Uh, yeah, so I, I think that's that's perhaps part of the shift that needs to happen is not saying uh, you can't just blame the internet, but you also have to observe the role that the internet plays, the way that it changes the dynamics, the, the access that it gives people. You can't just sort of say, oh, well, if we just take it away from them, then that will sort out you know, the alt-right will go away if we shut off the internet. And apart from the ridiculousness of the idea of shutting off the internet, it, it won't. Mm. It won't. But we, so you have to sort of balance those two things. That The internet didn't necessarily make all these things happen, but it's made some of them happen. Yeah, or at least facilitated them. Let's, yeah. let's just take a very quick break and be back in a moment. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, before the break, uh, Katrina was just talking about, I suppose, you know, the, the fact that we have the internet and there are going to be complaints about it, but we can't, it's completely fanciful to consider a world without it now. And there are many, many benefits, of course, countless benefits uh, that we see in our lives. Um, Shirley, I wonder where where you sort of stand in this debate because I guess it's fair to say that of the four of us here, uh, you, Paul, and I are, are, are very much kind of, uh, you know, pre-internet people, um, prehistoric perhaps even. Um, uh, Thanks for that, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the youngest of us, uh, so I'm, 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 you know, I'm going to take that, uh, I'm going to take that small prize. But um, Shirley, I just wonder, uh, that, that that question about, you know the net good or the net good of the net, if I can put it like that. Um, it's obviously a great positive, but there are concerns, and and um, there are, as as we've discussed, the impetus for this book was the the Christchurch massacre, um, and there have been things since uh, that that we know of the the January six insurrection and how the internet and social media and 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 other platforms end to end encryption and so forth uh, were used in all of that. This presents an enormous sort of regulation problem 
but also a sort of a socialization problem i'd argue um how do we how do we address it the nation states almost you know sort of somewhat powerless against these these massive supranational corporations the internet is all of the previous forms of communication on steroids and if you think about it it's aggregated them all up so it is television it is radio it is newspapers it is a photo album it is chatting to your neighbor over the fence it is all of these forms of communication all at once it's broadcasting it's narrowcasting it's um it's something we have never seen before and the legal frameworks that we had in place were simply completely inadequate now you you couple that with the speed with which the internet exploded into the world i mean from you know it started as the sort of nerdy thing that um you know a few scientists put up to communicate with one another and now it's something that everybody carries around um on devices or on their wrists um it has simply been impossible for uh democracy democracies or even autocracies to keep up with uh the pace of change of the internet um i mean initially there was a huge amount of criticism for example of um countries that actually tried to regulate the internet on the basis that this was anti-democratic and now of course democracies are suddenly realizing that an unregulated um internet is also profoundly anti-democratic and a threat to democracy itself um it, you know i mean i go to paul's and to his chapter crisis what crisis paul is absolutely right there is always a call from elites to uh damp down the voices of the people to actually control forms of communication Turhi is also right that the internet is fundamentally different to every other form of communication technology that we have ever seen uh and i think it's going to take another decade until we can even get close to understanding what it is um and to figuring out how we're actually going to uh live with it if 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 we i mean that's kind of a positive reading too because i'm i'm the ever, ever optimistic person who actually believes this will happen but we are going to see more and more ugly events occurring um which are facilitated by the internet and particularly by social media until that happens so i mean the if i might jump in there mark i think there are three points to make in response uh to that i ultimately obviously i agree with shirley and with terry um and with the 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 all the authors in the book that that this is something different but i think there are three points that really need to be thought about one is how this gets entangled with the right to free speech two the overwhelming naivety of the people who began to use the internet for political purposes this was seen in a way as a way of was called monetary democracy the way that people could um could actually keep the state uh, under control through use of smartphones and and so forth and it was so naive that to think that the that the right or the alt right weren't also going to be able to use it for for political purposes 
And I guess my fundamental point is, by the time we catch up with the internet, if we ever can, what's next? What is going to seem like the next crisis where this one will sort of pale into significance? And I think if you look at the historical narratives, the same sorts of things are being said about printing, about radio, about television, that this opens up new possibilities for politics and everything has changed and nothing will ever be the same. So what's next? It's a really good question because we don't know, but what we can say is that this has all happened really, really quickly. Uh, as you said, Katrina, mm. sort of in the mid-90s, you kind of uh, sort of feel it happen essentially mm. in real time. Uh, and we, and that's a that's a very short time frame for such a dramatic transformation of the, the way information flows around the world. And we know about all of these, the ways in which social media has been used. Misinformation, of course, is is a, is a whole thing now. It's a whole force that that um, that governments are dealing with, that populations are dealing with. Uh, it's weaponized. It's used to roll governments, to delegitimize governments, to um, to to spark movements, um, and used mendaciously. It is misinformation after all. Uh, Donald Trump's presidency is is you know was floated on it, um, and 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 you know, and left in a, a flurry of, of um, misinformation. And of course, there's been plenty of it around, even as we record this in recent days, uh, around the, the, the FBI raids on Mar-a-Lago, his, um, his Florida mansion. So, I mean, as Paul says, uh, you know, we can ask what next, but w what's your view about it? Is there a, a threat to democracy itself? Or, or, or perhaps put it another way, is it likely from where we sit at the moment that digital ways of doing things, including in the transaction of democracy, the relationship between people and their governments, will come to overwhelm the pre-digital forms, mm. elections and so forth. Mm. I think, yeah, on the second point, they will, they sort of have already. There is already a turn to the use of social media as a way of, of running all campaigns. We saw it in the recent Australian election that yeah. the independents used social media more than they used a lot of the traditional forms of media. And so, and, and I think in a way, I guess on that point, that sort of gives us that insight that it's, it's not, it's not going to, overwhelm democracy. It can be used as a tool to support democracy and to undermine democracy. That's what's so difficult about it. But, but, but I mean, it strikes me that w when we say democracy, and that was, that was probably yeah. my fault, we should really be saying representative democracy, right? Yeah. Because, because that's always worked on the basis that we have representatives who are collating enough information about an issue and in, in how it relates to their community to do that representation and do so reasonably faith faithfully. But the digital world gives us the opportunity for a much more direct relationship between what people want almost on a daily basis. I mean, what was logistically impossible before is now possible. That is to basically be having citizen referenda on everything. Mm -hmm. The digital world presents that possibility. Why do you need parliaments, for example? <laughs> Great. Um, yeah, why do we? We'll just move it on Twitter. That'll be fine. Uh, yeah, but... I mean, one of the things is, is, is 
in a way, I guess, and I would say this because I guess I am I am a lecturer and, and I, one of the things I do is teach, but education is part of this, mm. is there was a whole myth that we dealt with about the digital native, which still has a lot of currency, this idea that people who grew up with certain types of technology with the net are therefore have a level of expertise. But it's, it's wrong. It's like one of the reasons that technology has become so pervasive is because it's been designed to be easy to use. You know, it's designed to be addictive as well. Smartphones, apps are all designed to kind of trigger our brains to work in certain ways. It's very hard to put down. We've all experienced that sense of anxiety of being separated from a device. And so <laughs> like, I admit to it. I'm conscious of why it happens, but it's hard. And so part of it is this, we need to educate people to understand uh, what they're giving up when they click I've read the terms and conditions and they haven't read the terms and conditions, uh, which I do. Uh, we need to educate people to think about, you know, if you join, if you become a follower of Donald Trump on Twitter in 2015, because you think it's quite funny that this guy is running for president and he seems like a bit of a buffoon and it's this sort of, you know, series of, uh, you know, entertaining spectacles unfolding, you're, you're essentially sitting down and, and giving him an audience. You're, you're creating, you're, you're expanding the reach of a person like that. And so it needs to be, you need to make educated choices about. I like to think I was fairly impervious to Kavefi and uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you, but but they, they those moves seem funny, but they're deliberate. It, I'm it's not sure like, Kavefi was. But. No, but but the way he responds to it is deliberate. Yeah. It's like well. He doesn't delete it. He lets it go. Mm. He lets it spread out. People, he gets what he wants. People are talking about him. It doesn't matter if they're saying he's a fool or trying to decipher his his weird, you know, posts. And and that's part of of the difference between you know, I, thirty years ago, if he went on TV and acted like an absolute buffoon as someone in power, there would potentially have been more ramifications. You you well, would have been that's a, that's laughed a, off the screen. You might not have been invited back. That. You don't know about well, yeah, I will I'll, well, I'll no, I think it's hand a, over to your your wisdom. I, I, I think it's an interesting <laughs> I think it's an interesting point, Paul, because um going back to the, the to the point about uh those the pre digital period, that being mediated, that being controlled by by elites, by by journalists and newspapers and and television stations and so forth. So um, our politics was less raw in that sense. Our relationship with it was less raw. Uh, I, I suspect what Katrina's saying there is is probably right, um, that a lot of the, the stuff that Trump was able to get away with and, and other demagogues have, have, have modelled as well, um, it reaches enough people now. In ways that are that are completely unfiltered. I mean, what did you think about what we had with Donald Trump? We had access to his midnight mind, which was an un, an unpretty thing, but nonetheless, we had a sort of direct, unfiltered access to the president, uh, to his thinking, even more so than his chief of staff or his advisors, let alone editors or political correspondents or the various processes through which information. And messaging used to flow. I mean, a lot of the things that Trump said, he would have been counselled away from saying just about everything. Really, uh, would have been counselled away from saying by by advisors in the past. And politics wasn't raw in that sense. Now, at one level, you could say, Paul, that's that's so. Now it's much more democratic, much more honest. You know, there's less artifice involved. But at another level, 
you don't need to win half you don't need to win more than half the electorate not much more anyway you just need to win half of it and that's what Trump essentially did who speaks for those people who voted for him i mean the people the leaders of the last decade who've spoken out against censorship of the internet are barack obama and angela merkel mm. these have been the two poles of the hope for democracy they can't they can't ultimately see that it's going to be a good thing and so i think we need to think carefully 70 odd million people voted for donald trump who who's going to speak for them if we if we and who's going to decide what gets censored off the internet and on what basis these are these are questions which i don't know the answers to but they're questions that we need to discuss Shirley, I'm hoping you've got the answer to that because uh, you know um, you've you've taken the helicopter view here. I mean, in a sense, that that is one of the questions, but it's also it's also a kind of a rhetorical question because we no one's really suggesting that we are going to be able to go back to a pre digital way of transacting our our politics or our public debate. So the answer has to lie somewhere in between, doesn't it? With with as light a touch regulation as is possible, coupled with perhaps, as I've tried to argue before, perhaps some level of, I don't know, some some establishment of some level of kind of mores of, of, of social standards in, in the digital space, or is that just pie in the sky? Look, I think it depends what question you ask. If you're talking about... Um uh, somehow controlling the speech of, you know, 70 million people, that's one thing. If you're talking about, um, can, you know, exercising some degree of control over groups like the Proud Boys, who are extreme armed militia, who have already shown their willingness to launch an armed attack on the US Capitol building, that's Quite a different thing. One is one is a violent extremist um, rhetoric accompanied with evidence of violent action. The other is um, shooting the breeze on social media. They're not the same thing, and I actually think that conflating them is an argument that is used by extremist groups in order to try to protect their own activity. So I think, it, as I say, it depends what question you ask, what what answer you come up with. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. Katrina, we're, we're getting uh, close to time, but I thought I might just sort of put this to you because your uh, your chapter was, uh, as I said, it was called uh, The Perform- Performance of Power, The Site of Public Debate. And it occurred to me reading it that one of the things that we've done, and this is quite understandable, one of the things we've done as the internet came about, as these social media platforms emerged into our lives, is that a lot of things in the digital space were sort of explained with by, by physical analogies uh, so that we could understand essentially what these digital concepts were. Um, and, of course, one of them that's very pervasive is the idea of um, social media as being like the town square. Uh, can you talk to that? to the strengths and weaknesses of that? Yeah, it's a really interesting um, metaphor. I think when I was thinking about what to write in the chapter, I saw people tweeting about, but you can't, I can't even remember quite at the time what the crisis was, but, you know, you can't ban someone 
from this because you can't ban them from the town square. That's you know, undemocratic. And I thought, well, there's plenty of examples in the past of civic spaces uh, from which people are often banned or that are reserved for certain purposes. And so I thought it's, it's, it's interesting as a historian to examine that history. And in a way, what I was interested in not, was not so much that, that long history of how different types of, of meeting spaces, civic spaces, um, have been used, like the Agora in Athens or the Forum in Rome or, um, sort of, public squares in in early modern cities but was to think about the way that we idealize this the way that we say if as if we can just have a civic square in the city that will bring democracy to the people who exist there and it's a really it it is perhaps true to an extent it's a, you need to have those spaces where people can come together where they can see each other as a population i think i quoted but, but that's an interesting yeah. point isn't it because yeah. that's where for me that's where the metaphor falls down really yeah. quite dramatically is mm. that you can't see each other in in digital in the digital space, and a lot of people rely on anonymity. As anyone who has a Twitter following knows, mm. it's 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 rife with with people who hide behind anonymity. And there mm. are lots of people who defend anonymity too. I'm not one of them, I might say, but there are lots of people who do, and and I think they have, mm. you know, they, there there are some good mm. prima facie arguments for it in terms of you know public servants or people who would otherwise come in for some level of discrimination if they revealed themselves. Um, but nonetheless, it's it's a wild west, and uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, vituperation and abuse and and so forth that goes on there. That doesn't happen. I mean, you can go into a into the town square and you can start screaming at whoever's talking at the time, mm. but you won't last very long, mm. and your face will be seen. You'll be accountable for for that behaviour in some in some way. There will be some social sanction. The internet doesn't no, carry it, any of that. And it's one of the things that's different about the web, I think. I mean, you say you you can't get away with it for long, but we had those, um, the convoy to Canberra seemed to hang around in Canberra for yeah, quite a long time. They were hanging around with each other. I mean, <laughs> with they each all... other, but they were present <laughs> in our spaces. In a way, but, but I do see it is one of the things that's changed about the web and it, it's changed over the period of the web becoming part of our social lives as opposed to just going into it to retrieve information that that when you know when I remember being taught this as a high school student in the mid 90s it was like never reveal who you are online you know make sure that your email address is not mm. your real name make sure that you never use your real name you never reveal anything about yourself and then that's completely shifted to the point where as you say and quite rightly in many cases anonymity is treated with suspicion facebook bought in rules i can't remember how long ago maybe even 10 years ago to say you 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 can't use a a, a, a pseudonym. You mm. were meant to use your real name. Obviously, not everyone does, but there was this push to have people reveal who they really were online. And and there's a division. We see it on Twitter. You probably see a lot more of it as someone with a bigger Twitter following than I have. That that if you have anonymous people replying to you, you think, oh, here we go. Like this is why are they anonymous? Mm. And whenever it's a real name, you tend to think, well, okay, I'll give this person. Some time, but it's it's tricky. It's it's a tricky thing because anonymity can be a fantastic thing. Uh, it can be a good protection for people who are who are under threat from hate speech and are under threat from violence. But it can also yeah, be used I, I, for I, the people I, who want to do that. I, I buy so. that to an extent. I just think it's an argument that uh, is somewhat overcooked. Uh, 
because numerically the number of people who are on, you know, the number of people who are on things like Twitter and who rely on uh, anonymity to then just fire off abuse at people and the whole sort of collapse of civility in that space as a result of that, the whole tone of, of it can be can be pretty pretty bloody alienating um, and distressing. And I know plenty of my former colleagues in journalism who literally have just left it because they are attacked mercilessly and, you know, personally uh, for it. And I just think, oh, really, that's 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 pretty uncivilised. Um, look, uh, we're out of time. We've we could talk about this for a long time, and I can I can um, you know I'd love to be able to do that. But I can strongly recommend the book. I'm going to very quickly just go through the authors here because we couldn't have all of the authors in the studio, of course. Um, but uh, the aforementioned Shirley Leach and Paul Pickering, of course, are the editors. Uh, they also are contributors to the book. Also, uh, Professor Sally Wheeler, Robert Fleet, uh, Andrew Hughes, Mark Nolan, and Dominique Della Pozza. Um, Katrina Grant, as you're here, Katrina, um, uh, Terhinamiko Fuller, uh, uh, along with uh, Paul Pickering, of course. So there's plenty to read here. There are lots of different uh, angles that uh, are treated in this book. And the good thing for you, if you're listening on the internet, by definition, as you will be for this podcast, is that you can also access this book. You can download it for free. So it's available available from ANU Press. We'll put the link on the um, notification about uh, this podcast, and uh, you'll be able to access it there and you can fire off whatever abuse you feel inclined to. No, uh, you can um, uh, learn from that uh, pr- that process and hopefully um, start some further discussions and debate. So uh, thank you, Paul. Thanks, Mark. Thank you, Shirley. Thanks a lot, Mark. And thank you, Katrina. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, uh, all of you, for your time today. I hope that's been uh, enjoyable as it has been for me and uh, that's Democracy Sausage for this week. See you again next week. Bye for now. 